Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening and showing us love and, and all the other great things you all do. Uh, but Travis, what are we getting up to this episode? So you may remember that last time we talked about Perpetua, Felicity, and their passionate battles against the devil in their martyrdom. But we weren't going to simply leave them for martyred in the rearview mirror, right? No, we are sticking around their turf, uh, which is present-day Algeria, where we will be meeting our next informant, Quintus Septimius Florence Tertullianus, better known as Tertullian. Like Perpetua and Felicity, Tertullian was really into martyrdom, not that it actually happened to him as far as anyone can tell. So much so that his attempts to comfort the martyrs awaiting death in prison is that they are actually on the fast track out of prison. The world is a prison, and most, if not all, of humanity is a pack of criminals. Wow, cheery guy. Yeah, like, it strikes me that this argument wouldn't do so well on, say, death row today. So, (laughs) right. So one historian, apparently given to long-distance forensic psychopathology, pronounced that Tertullian was probably not psychotic, but merely paranoid. And here's my hot take. I'm not sure how far to go with this kind of diagnosing people with psychological disorders, you know, thousands of years later. Uh, But, you know, whatever floats your boat. Yeah, I think for me, the point is that Tertullian is pretty intense. He's kind of a hard ass in all his books. And this guy left no thought unwritten. But before we get into all of that, let's go over some of the rather sketchy details of Tertullian's life and times. Uh, He's born in the mid-2nd century, so toward the end of the Antonine dynasty of the Roman emperors, so who are like basically competent rulers. Uh, But when Tertullian's becoming an adult and starting to write a lot around the 190s, uh, the empire is starting to fall into chaos with the year of the five emperors. That must have been quite a year, um, which is like this time of like a lot of coups and plots and murders, more so than you would even think would be normal in Roman history, uh, which is sometimes a lot. Uh, so the chaos makes an impact on the slowly but steadily growing Christian movement. And it, you can sort of it's easy to imagine how members of this new sect church philosophy, pick your your organizational category might fall under suspicion when times are getting tough. So we don't have a lot of clarity on the kind of history of Tertullian's religious affiliation, but we, you know, most folks think that he converted to Christianity at some point during his life and that he started publishing toward the end of the second century and into the early third. The latest work he could have possibly written was in the 220s, if you're trying to get your timeline right here. So he's known as the first great Latin theologian. There were definitely Christians who wrote in Latin before him, but you know, of the people that get cited all the time by the folks who come after, Tertullian is definitely a huge name. He initially was a staunch defender of what we might call, in retrospect, proto-Orthodoxy, which is to say these factions of Christianity hadn't sorted themselves out yet into who was going to win the battle in the end. And so his 
arguments in general fall on the side that later would win out and would be called, in retrospect, the orthodox position, for the most part. We'll talk about the one exception there. He is definitely in attack dog mode in his writings against perceived heresies, Gnosticism, Marcionism, as well as the idolatries and philosophical speculations of the Greco-Roman world. This is a bit ironic considering how he's been remembered. Hashtag heretic. And we'll get into or that. hashtag schismatic. Hashtag schismatic is probably closer. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to talk about him and the Holy Spirit. It's going to get so good. But we're trying to like make this part exciting. So stick around. Tertullian is famous for this line that is cited as if he said, I believe because it is, is absurd. And the thing is, the notion that he said that is absurd itself, right? So the thing he actually said, I know you want the Latin. So here you go. This is really for Klaus. Et mortuus est dei filius, prosus credibile est, quia ineptum est et sepultus resurrexit, certum est quia impossible. Which is, I don't know. Okay. The son of God died. Uh, that thing is believable because it is, and then here's the keyword, ineptum, okay? Um, and then we'll get into exactly what that means, but for now, unfitting or foolish, I think might be the best translations. Um, and he, let's see, sepultus est, he was buried, and the buried one was, was resurrected. Um, that is certain because it is impossible. Okay, so that's what he actually said. But then that gets turned around. Um, that gets turned around in a two-step process. The first step is in 17th century England. Someone's trying to summarize what he says, basically. Uh, and then Voltaire picks it up and turns it a bit further toward the citation that we hear now, I believe because it is absurd. This functions to position religion and theism rhetorically as the other of this new enlightenment rationalism. And so faith, which had been a theological virtue before this point, becomes instead an epistemic vice. You're doing philosophy wrong in this manner because you have this faith and there's something absurd about faith in, that, in the context of that debate. Okay, the problem with all of this is that Tertullian means something different than the way he's been cited. So this word ineptum, which he uses to say that something is believable because it is blank, really means something closer to it's unfitting. And he's equating it with this Pauline language of foolishness, divine foolishness. Um, what God is up to is not going to seem logical to us as human beings, which is not the same thing as, as saying something is believable because it sounds crazy. Um, he had available to him this word absurdus or absurd, uh, which he does not use in the Latin. So another interesting facet of this is scholars have posited, well, where is Tertullian getting this? One answer to that is that it could be a principle from Aristotle's rhetoric. When people give incredible explanations, there is a strong probability that they are telling the truth because a lie would have been more plausible. So when someone says something super crazy sounding to you, maybe actually you should tend to believe them because why didn't they just make up a lie that was more believable, okay? And because Tertullian was definitely a master of classical rhetoric, he would have been familiar with this um, incredibly popular and important text from Aristotle. It was not until the early modern period, though, with the advent of the concept of religion, per se, and, of course, 
critically, all of its critics, do we get attention to this passage from Tertullian and this new interpretation? Yeah, yeah, and uh, sort of a, another related famous passage from Tertullian is this rhetorical question that, that really relates to what you're talking about of what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Um, meaning like Athens, the, you know, the site of the development of Greek philosophy and where Socrates lived and Plato and all these guys. Um, and uh, it's sort of, again, like sort of gesturing towards like this uh, fideist rejection of philosophy. Um, be interesting to know how often that was cited. I, I, I think it's cool that this, uh, I believe because it's absurd thing, is like a fairly modern invention. Um, I wonder if that's also the case for Athens and Jerusalem. Um, maybe something to figure out later. Tweet us, tweet uh, us. Let us know if you yeah. already know the answer to this question. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other thing is that it's sort of gesturing, uh, again, like at the sort of contrast between divine foolishness or, re you know, revealed truth. Uh, you know, uh, Tertullian writes like we're educated on the porch of Solomon. We don't need we don't need Athens. We don't need it. We don't need to go to, to a different place. Like we have we have this sort of symbolic, you know, city that is the the site of truth. But how crazy um, is that? Considering the way like the direction Christianity goes in the following centuries, it's these are these Greek philosophical yeah. components are so important. I mean, when people when I ha when I'm <laughs> usually in academic settings. Uh, forced to describe the big picture story of what happens in, in this time period, that's just essential to understanding how Christianity starts to cohere as, as a belief system, right? Yeah, and, and, and you know, we Justin Martyr was, you know, fashioned himself, styled himself a philosopher. Um, so it's not as if uh, Tertullian is necessarily speaking you know, with the univocal support of the tradition that, you know, he's, he's writing in. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, certainly we'll see with, 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 uh, Augustine later that, uh, philosophy is, you know, like in this part of the Roman empire, it was, it did have high prestige. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting view and it's really blown out of proportion. Um, but yeah, like, uh, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? It's sort of also linked to kind of questions of, what what is Western tradition like? What is the what is the political philosophical tradition of the West like? How do we how do we understand the the concord between rationalism and and, and speculative philosophy and divine revelation? I mean, this is sort of this big question that you know sort of occupies intellectual history and, and philosophy and theology, uh, especially as like the West is sort of trying to conceptualize itself as this kind of singular tradition. Um, this question, this sort of like provocation of Tertullian uh, is, is taken as like sort of like the, the school book, you know, set problem challenge to that view. Right. Um, right. While at the same time, we will not lose sight of the fact that that's not actually a great way to tell this history. <laughs> right. That, yeah, there, exactly. that all of these things are debates and all of this is contested ground. And this single narrative of the West and its sorting out of Christianity and the relation between philosophy and theology, uh, this is, this is only a single story in retrospect. Yeah, exactly. And just to read the quote, um, uh, not in Latin, <laughs> but what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Uh, our instruction comes from the portrait of Solomon, who has been taught himself that the Lord should be sought in simplicity of heart. Um, away with all attempts to produce a modeled Christianity of stoic, platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation 
after possessing Christ Jesus, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. Um, and his whole, like, what, you know, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? What conquered is there between the academy and the church, between heretics and Christians? really reminds me of Paul in 2 Corinthians, um, this sort of really kind of bellicose question, like, what fellowship between Christ and Belial, you know, between Christ and the devil? Um, it, it's sort of, he's echoing that sort of Pauline rhetorical uh, rhetorical question. On the other... Uh, and it kind of gets us... It gets us into the devil a little bit here because the devil is at the heart of this sort of opposition between the church and Christianity and uh, the the pagan world. On the other hand, of course, Paul famously is extend is extending the inheritance of Judaism radically outwards, specifically to Greek culture and Greek speaking peoples. And we get Galatians three, for example. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That's all Paul. Um, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Sorry to try and finish and skip to the end of that really amazing verse. So, um, so this this pulling up pulling back apart that the Greek, I, I would say, I suppose, cultural element or the ethnos of other peoples, uh, flattening it to heresy and and tying it only to Greek philosophy feels to me against the spirit of the earlier tradition in Paul. That's all. So I know I said earlier that I don't love the kind of diagnosis by psychologists of historical people, but I will say that I think Tertullian is writing in a somewhat paranoid time. Rumors are swirling that Christians are committing cannibalism when they partake of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. More rumors circulate that they're just always super horny and their quote-unquote love feasts are actually just orgies. And Klaus, can I just be honest here that I've practiced Christianity my whole life and the only love feasts I've ever been invited to definitely had nothing to do with orgies. Did Christians become a whole lot more boring or were we always boring and people just made assumptions based on the name of the event? Love feast does sound pretty exciting, to be honest. Uh, Follow-up question about exciting titles for boring events. Should I retitle all of my classes, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, even if the class is like a paleography seminar on medieval papal chancery scripts? What do you I think? think uh, I think Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll is like really, is really kind of boomerfied. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to do better you than that. To, you have to I play it a little younger. Title. I don't know. Um, okay, and All I right, won't try sure. to do that. Um, no, I think like here as a as an what are we now? We're now geriatric millennials, or I am. I don't think you are. It's like eighty through eighty five. I mean, something. I guess I would be. I'm eighty three. So okay, so as elder or perhaps geriatric millennials, maybe we should. Yeah, I, I think my my role here is to like mention TikTok some sort of TikTok joke, but we're, let's not, and then we'll just move on. Yeah, we can, we can skip the pandering. <laughs> or not, it's not even pandering, Perfect. it's just attempts to feel relevant. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're talking about rumors and, like, you know, relevant to the theme of this pod, uh, Tertullian sees the devil in all this uh, scurrilous chatter. In one particular text about whether Christians are permitted to flee persecution, um, Tertullian sees the persecutors as the tools of the devil, and this probably isn't too shocking, 
who uh, himself is being instrumentalized by God to test the faithful. Here we are glimpsing one of our familiar themes, obviously. Uh, the devil is a fucking bastard and God's caddy or nine iron of divine justice because faith must be tested <laughs> and someone's got to do the dirty work, like getting the ball out of the sand trap or whatever. Uh, yes. Given that, Tertullian says it is impermissible to flee persecution or to bribe others to avoid persecution when, when Christians gather to worship. This makes it seem like Tertullian sees himself living in this hostile sojourn in a foreign land, an evil empire, if you will. And to a certain extent, that's true. He writes, the world is the real prison, etc. Still, there's a lot to suggest that Tertullian saw the Christians as able to function and help the empire, even if they should be distinct and separated to a large degree. It's a somewhat complicated position to take. At the same time, Tertullian is seemingly pro-Roman Empire. So Christian holiness and prayer actually secures material benefit for the empire. Stay with me for a second. So Christians have a kind of relationship with the master of the universe. So Christians, according to Tertullian, can't shed blood Pace Augustine, who later develops a dispensationalist view. Okay. But we do have, for example, a scholar, Weiss, who argues that late antique Christians fashion themselves as spiritual slash covenantal descendants of, wait for it, the Levites. And that's a priestly tribe of the Hebrew Bible uh, among the Israelites, whose piety and purity are instrumental for military success, yet who may not be stained with blood and thus can't serve themselves in the military. So the argument here is that they're, these early Christians are sort of like Levites in, the, in this funny position they take vis-a-vis -vis the empire and military service and shedding blood. So Christians, however, Tertullian argues, are formidable in their courage. They will gladly seek death in martyrdom, but they are forbidden to take life. So hypothetically, they would be an amazing fighting force, kamikaze warriors for the cause, but their rule of life prohibits them from serving in this way. So instead, they become, to borrow an evangelical term, prayer mm. warriors. Yeah, you're welcome. So apparently for Tertullian, it was fine to pray for military victory as long as you don't actually do the killing yourself. Wow. Uh, I guess to risk an understatement, his attitudes seem pretty complex. Uh, <laughs> maybe the subtlety of his ideas begin to get Tertullian in a bit of trouble, though. Um, he is alive and writing before the uh, quote-unquote orthodox positions on theology, like the big ones on the Trinity and Christology and the Incarnation, are, are totally hammered out. And that happens over a span of the next two centuries. Uh, but for a while, Tertullian's views were within the acceptable mainstream. Uh, and we don't need to get into all of the, uh, the major details of his Trinitarian thought. Um, if that is something you're interested in, it would surprise you how different they are than what gets nailed out in Nicaea. Um, but more important for uh, this episode, uh, Tertullian gets caught up. That makes it sound like he's like sort of recruited and, and seduced. And I don't really actually mean to imply that. But he gets, he gets involved in a movement that came out of Asia Minor originally, uh, and one that emphasized the continuing prophetic revelations of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and members of this movement referred to it as the prophecy or the new prophecy. 
Yeah, and this group's emphasis on prophecy and on continuing revelation is something that keeps being a problem for the church in the coming centuries. Because, as you can imagine, it can be hard to have both a bureaucratic institution with rules and authorities when you've got this wily Holy Spirit that shows up and challenges all that orderly structure that you've set up with these inconvenient prophecies about how you're doing it wrong. God, stop interfering. We're trying to run this show for you. Why can't you just shut the hell up and let us do our yeah, job? You just like morphed into the Grand Inquisitor from uh, from uh, <laughs> the Brothers Karamazov. I feel like I should put that on my resume then, if that's what just you, happened. I mean, like, I think you, you need to do it. I mean, you should probably stop recording and okay. you can do that right now. Um, I am, I need, and now I need an IMDb page yeah, for that. Right. <laughs> so anyway, I'm an actor now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, apart from that sort of... Uh, structure, chaos, counterstructure, you know, thing that you were just talking about. There's also um, another destabilizing aspect in that uh, prophecy could be something that, that women partook of. Um, you know, the first prophets in the, uh, the prophecy movement, it's also no, it's known mostly as, as Montanism. Um, that's sort of like the, the heresy term for it. Uh, but the first prophets mm-hmm. were, were Priscilla and Maximilla. So we have like women who are key figures in this early movement. Um, and there are hints in what we read uh, last time, Perpetua and Felicity, that there's like there's sort of a montanist themes about prophecy and about female leadership that sort of crop up there, obviously, too. So sort of fitting with that theme. Um, despite that, you know, Tertullian can sort of be on board. And I think scholars have problematized Tertullian as the sort of uh, the quintessential Montanist. He seems like maybe more of an odd case than, than your sort of your sort of standard Montanist, if there was such a thing. Um, but, he, you know, he can be on board with the prophecy and, and you know, potentially with a more uh, equitable uh, gender participation in spiritual revelations. And at the same time, you know, totally endorse the way women are barred from baptism or ba- doing the baptizing or work, you know, sort of uh, functioning as, as ecclesiastical uh, uh, servants. Uh, and so like there's, you know, this is not to say that he is, you know, uh, some sort of radical by, by, you know, in terms of gender politics, by, by subscribing to the prophecy. Um, it's also the question of like, whether this is even really, it's appropriate to think of this as a heresy. Um, it's almost a kind of historiographical myth that Tertullian was like excommunicated or booted out of the church. Uh, though if you read like surveys of theology or Christian history, that it'll seem like that. Uh, there's no evidence for that. People just like, were like, Oh, he was part of a heresy and therefore he must've been excommunicated and forced out. It's like, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> um, and there didn't really seem to be anything particularly heretical about it, except for this insistence that, you know, um, God is still doing this re- revealing and the revealing mostly, you know, pertain to uh, church discipline and ethics and like a willingness to undergo martyrdom. Um, So sort of keeping these continuities going. So like you, Klaus, I've got a real suspicion that this characterization of Montanism as a quote unquote heresy is pretty bogus. It's a little bit, uh, it sounds much more like there was a stronger emphasis on one part of the tradition that caused some discussion and some strife. But I think we're modeling too much on other quote unquote heretical movements when we start thinking about Montanism in those ways. It's Um, It's anachronistic, yeah. It feels anachronistic, in other words. And we just don't know. It's possible, but the evidence just 
we have such little evidence about this movement as a whole that it's just hard to draw these conclusions. So, uh, but we do know that for a long time, Tertullian was held in suspicion by be, w because of this association with Montanist themes and with Montanist theology by historians and theologians and that he was never sainted. That's just, that seems gut-wrenching for him or, or gutting as the, as the blokes would say on MasterChef, the professionals. I don't know if you know this, but I'm more of a great British bake-off girl myself, which maybe explains why I'm more familiar with gutted, which P.S. I always thought was some sort of hyperbole connecting intense disappointment to someone removing your intestines. So now I need to know, gutting and gutted, are these from the same, like, philology? So any British fans out there slash philologists, I'm assuming that there's some overlap here. Please tweet us to help clear up this important controversy. So if the devil were a character on one of these legendary British cooking shows, who would it be? I think, I think our audience would agree with me 100% that it's Paul from The Great British Bake Off, and I'm just going to put all my money on that. Yeah, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to say no to Paul. I, I think Greg from MasterChef is just like vile. So like I, I, I almost, I almost despise him more than Paul, but you know, I'll let other people sort that out. Um, I feel like it's the coldness of Paul though. You know what I'm saying? It's not so much that he's a vile like personality as that he just, when he walks by and people are in the, pro in the process of doing their thing, there's no emotion. And that is much scarier. It's like kind of a bit though. I think it's like, he, he, he's like playing it up so much now that he's become a parody of himself. Whereas Greg like tries to be like, like cuddly and your friend, but like, really he's just like, he's cold. You know, it's like, it's like this bullshit facade of friendliness. And then underneath it's just like, Oh, like this is just like, some self-serving dude, you know, I don't know. That's my, that's, Ooh, that's, that's not more evil, but like depending on whose devil we're talking about, you know, as someone who is playing a role, so to speak, I actually think Paul counts clo is closer to Tertullian's devil. But anyway, yeah. Yep. Paul might be more of a tool for a grand, a grand system than, than, uh, than, than Greg. So yeah, maybe you're I right. Think you just called Paul a tool. I'm just gonna <laughs> yeah. I can't Careful. believe it. Um, okay. uh, anyway, <laughs> Uh, but maybe we should take a pause in this learned discourse and chat a bit about some of the key points of Tertullian's ideas about the devil, uh, <laughs> starting with how did we get here? Well, it's really similar to what we saw in the life of Adam and Eve way back in episode one. The classic. So the, yeah, a classic, classic. The devil wasn't happy with these new creatures, these human scum. So disappointing. Speaking of disappointment. So he tempts them and even pushes Cain to extreme resentment and eventual murder of Abel. It's not totally clear if Satan falls just as he's entering Eden to tempt Adam and Eve or at the moment he does so, but it's not so important right now. Uh, the point is he's on the fritz with God from this point on. Okay. Okay. That, that sounds pretty familiar. I, see, I think some things are starting to, to solidify in terms of the tradition, but if we're going to stick it with Genesis for just another few minutes, how does Tertullian feel about the myth of the watchers in Genesis six? Oh, huge fan. Like, he votes watchers up and down the ticket. Man, well, him and me both, uh, maybe we should just, like, cancel this and do a podcast where it's, like, this fanfic crossover universe between watchers and watchmen, DC Comics, Alan Moore legend stuff. Uh, you know, it's, like, in a world just made and gone crazy. That You know, that's sort of the energy of, of uh, action film extravaganza. <laughs> 
Okay, well, I think we should probably stop podcasting and just start writing the script for that. I am totally 100% in. Um, but we better not let Tertullian catch us writing fanfic or doing art or anything fun because in spite of his being a rhetorical genius he is pretty harsh when it comes to all that stuff am i right uh it totally makes sense and that's that checks out with what i saw you know for tertullian god is still speaking like the ucc was Hashtag running ucc yeah. yes <laughs> just not to the artists you know <laughs> <laughs> well and certainly not to the fashion designers but this actually helps us explain Tertullian's take on the Watchers. So remember in Enoch, and particularly in Jubilees, how the Watchers teach humanity all these arts around metallurgy and weapons and the most dreadful and dreaded of all, makeup? I mean, who could forget that? But why is this keeping Tertullian up at night? I mean, like, get a life, man. Get your priorities straight. We're talking about makeup here. I mean, on the one hand, maybe he just wanted to wear makeup himself. Uh, or, I think this is more likely, Klaus, and it's going to it's gonna really surprise you. This is shocking stuff, but I think it has something to do with misogyny. Whoa, my head just exploded. Get Look, the fuck I know. out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he takes it all the way back to Eve. Hmm. Again, so original. Original, original. Original, yeah, yeah, yeah. original sin, as it were. <laughs> Hashtag original sin. These early theologians are completely obsessed with Genesis. Uh, there were other books in the Bible, guys. But anyway, every woman, each and every woman, according to Tertullian, bears some trace of Eve in themselves. Each reca recapitulates her succumbing to the devil. But I thought this was about the Watchers. Those mimbos didn't have anything to do with Eve's situation. Well, the daughters of men, as the text speaks of in Genesis 6, are her daughters, bound to her quote-unquote crime. What's funny is that Tertullian realizes he's dealing with some tensions here, and not just of the erotic kind. Yeah, like the logic kind, right? Mm -hmm. So if I pick up what I think you're putting down, the tension is, why did the Watchers teach women about adornment if they were already hot enough to get them to enter into a criminal effing conspiracy to disobey God and go rouge? I mean, I mean, rogue. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, you went there. That was incredible. Um, and for Tertullian, adornment and artifice, all this stuff represents something that's, got the kind of fingerprint of the devil in it. It's the idea of corruption, of the undoing of God's creation. So God creates true being, but the devil isn't able to do that. And so the devil responds by turning all that, perverting all that, if you will, uh, through and to illusions and deceptions. Yeah. And what I see with that is like, in that whole that whole conceptualization is like the weird part about Tertullian's misogyny is that he has this whole I'm not mad I'm disappointed dad energy going the entire time it's like you know he's speaking to the ladies because you're better than them the watcher boy toys and their glamorous fashion again it, jealousy or I, yeah yeah I, yeah I, I detect that Tertullian really wants to dress up and but feels really guilty about it just yeah I mean you know it wouldn't be shocking um and he keeps drawing on this kind of, uh, from, to my eyes, apparently not Tertullian's, random line from Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.3, in case you were wondering. Uh, he proclaims that uh, the followers of the gospel are destined to sit in judgment of the angels. Uh, and I guess he's connecting this to the fallen angels or the watchers. 
Um, and just to quote him, uh, for you two, woman as you are, no, thanks for telling, have the same, have the self-same angelic nature promised as your reward, the self-same sex as men, the self-same advancement to the d- dignity of judging, which the Lord God promises you. Unless then we begin even here to prejudge by pre-condemning their things, which we are hereafter to condemn in themselves, they will rather judge and condemn us. Um, okay, so there's just a lot there, but yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, I, I think I'm getting this that that women have an angelic nature, just like men, as their reward at some point, and they have the same sex as men. We've got a lot to talk about here. Okay, uh, so maybe that same sex as men uh, is a ref- is a reference to Galatians three twenty eight again, which I've already talked about today. Uh, for uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, et cetera, et cetera. There is no male and female um, for all are one in Christ Jesus, something like that. Mm. Uh, as a kind, so maybe he's reading that as a sort of promise of androgynous eschatological bodies. In other words, when we all go to heaven one day, I'm just going to preach it, Klaus. Um, we aren't going to be men and women anymore. Sex and perhaps gender are are going to go away with these earthly things that we leave behind, these distinctions between kinds of human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's sort of like a lot to pack into, uh, you know, doing the, the dad guilting about, about uh, dressing too mm-hmm. provocatively mm-hmm. along with the dad guilting. There's also Tertullian's dad jokes um, when talking about fancy clothing and dyes and stuff, he keeps going to this, rec- this question uh, this sort of jokey question, why didn't God just make the sheep purple if a purple cloak is the most royal of garments? I felt um, like, yeah, <laughs> he kept going on about the purple sheep. I was so confused. It was all, do pagans dream of periwinkle sheep? I, I re- really appreciate your your Philip K. Dick humor there. But yeah, I, yeah, it, it, was, it was such a such a random thing to be going on about. Um he, he really, he really like, you know, fancied himself the way. I suppose I so. But let's, let's try to focus here, Klaus. So he's freaking out about all this addiction to corruption and vanity. Remember the connection from the <laughs> sheep, <laughs> the colored sheep, you know, that spin the colored, the, mm. the gaily colored fabrics that these women are, are, are wearing when they shouldn't. It's so sinful because... When they're, when they're right, dating the exactly. watchers. <laughs> These angel dates that they're going on. Well, that's all wrong because it's connected to the devil because they're not wearing natural colored fabrics like they're supposed to. They're, it's all this artifice. They're corrupting, they're perverting nature, which is God and good. Now, he, I, I am flattening his argument a little. He does suggest that we can't always go with nature is good, artifice is bad. So I do want to point out that his argument's slightly more complex, complicated than that, but his distinction doesn't hold at all. But anyway, he really goes off on this when digressing yet again on makeup. And he writes, how unworthy the Christian name to wear a fictitious face, you on whom simplicity in every form is enjoined. You're supposed to be simple and you're not. You're wearing this makeup to lie in in your appearance, you to whom lying with the tongue is not lawful. You're lying in your appearance as well as your tongue to seek after what is another's, you to whom is delivered the precept of abstinence from what is another's to practice adultery in your mean, you you who make modesty your study. 
Think, blessed sisters, how will you keep God's precepts if you shall not keep in your own persons his lineaments? It's like so intense because so much of what the main message seems to be is that you don't belong mm. to yourselves. Mm-hmm. You're just renting here. No one told you you could repent. <laughs> you know, like, uh, it's, but it's only for women. Like, yeah, right? I mean, almost well. only for women. Right. Mm. He does, and he does say that men can be seduced by this stuff too. He like he he says some like ridiculous things about between uh, on on the, the the dress of women yeah. and on on the shows. Uh, he, you know, he talks men can men can like be all into athletes and and actors and you know he's not even talking about sexually though it sort of is implying that um, but like uh, he can sort of be like in awe of their abilities and like for him like that's also you know uh, right and dudes can also uh, um, care too much about their appearance he says there's a certain kind of male vanity yeah, yeah, as well yeah. that he's against but it's clearly also an afterthought um <laughs> it's like he's anticipating yeah, that's yeah. the that's actually the interesting part to me is he anticipates some sort of pushback on this attack against women in this in this sense and he, he's trying to sort of forestall that so yeah, and the main the main one he pushes he 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 does this in the beginning where he's like, oh, you're gonna tell me, oh, you Christians say that God made nature good, so all this stuff's nature. So what are you going on about with your sort of like uh, puritanical yes. reaction? And it's like, well, have you forgotten about the devil? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's <laughs> the devil ruins. Everything. Yeah, it's like um, it's like we'll the cardinal sin for him is like you know getting dolling up your face, getting dressed up, and oh. God forbid, going out to shows. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I thought was funny from the shows, and I'll sort of, well, I'll, I want to talk about the most famous part of the shows, I think, but uh, he's like talking about um, like how athletics is unbecoming or like sort of competitive athletics is unbecoming for Christians. And he, he mentions how uh, wrestling, like racing is like sanctioned once in the all of sacred writ. But wrestling itself is, is is a disgusting thing, and the the only time wrestling appears in the Bible is when the serpent wrestles Adam and Eve with temptation, you know, and pins them down in sin okay, and sin and death. Okay, but what about like, Jacob wrestling with God slash the angel, depending on how you read that? I, know, I mean, that seems I was like, like what a thing to forget yeah. about. Like, what a thing to forget about. Like, the, what the word like you know, Israel means and stuff. Like, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's so um, central. Oh well. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. But yeah, the, the one of the big, um, the famous pieces in Tertullian, it's cited in uh, Nietzsche's On the Genealogy of Morals, um, is this uh, fantasy sort of fugue state that Tertullian goes into at the very end, where he's like talking, you know, he's trying, she's been like saying that Christians can't go out to, to the theater, mm. to, you know, to sporting events, to races, no to gladiator no fights, fun at all. yeah, to all the stuff that, you know, like God, like probably living in, in the, the mid to late Roman empire, like was like the only comfort available. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you know, he's saying you can't do all this stuff, but he's like, but we're going to have, we Christians who can't go to this, we're going to have our own show at the end of time. We're going to have the best seats in the house in heavenly Jerusalem because we're going to be watching your asses getting tortured <laughs> in hell for forever. Whoa. And the best part, the best part is the people, it's like, and he's like, that's everyone who isn't a Christian. That's what you're all going to do with. But I'm going to be focusing on the ones who slandered Christ. Those are the ones I'm going to be cheering for getting tortured. Um, and it's, and he's like, and he realizes he's like self-aware enough to be like, this is all like me getting all, it's like, so like charged up and hot and bothered with my imagination. And he starts quoting Paul. He's like, you know, I can't actually see it. I can imagine it. I have not seen, ear hath not heard. And you're like, man, like you're putting this, 
this pious gloss on your like murderous fantasies. Um, it's, it's just wild. Oh, Tertullian, thanks so much for all that you've left us and, you know, all that you didn't see about yourself. Yes. Oh, well, here we are. And I mean, and for like Nietzsche and for, for Adam Kotzko, who also is interpreting this interpretation mm-hmm. of Tertullian, it's, you know, it's like the sort of the fantasy of vengeance and the, um, the way in which suffering becomes the point uh, for, for Christian, you know, it's suffering becomes like the content of the Christian message. And it's like, if it's, if it's not us suffering in this, this damned world, then it's like waiting for others to suffer in vengeance. And this sort of the, the slave morality contains like this sort of bitter, you know, aggressiveness. Yeah. I, I suppose I've been a little hard on Tertullian living in the, you know, quote unquote age of the martyrs and thinking about fun. And it probably is hard as people are, literally being tortured and killed who you think of as your brothers and sisters it's hard to turn around and theorize or theologize uh pleasure uh and in that kind yeah, of like at all extreme and, and all you get is all you get is like sadism you know? exactly <laughs> and so the best you can do is this kind of like post-apocalyptic sadism um i still think maybe we could have done better somewhere beauty joy i mean he did read greek philosophy but anyway here we are so apart from fantasizing about the roasting of skeptics in hellfire one of tertullian's other favorite activities was condemning heretics if you can believe it we won't go on at length about his appraisals of each and every theological opinion he disagreed with because i mean we could it's all there uh, suffice it to say that there are definitely some Gnostics, uh, but he saw the devil's hand or paw claws. I don't know in at each <laughs> and every one. Definitely had a finger in the pudding. Yeah. Uh, as we're so used to by now, it's all part of the plan. The devil inspired heretics aren't good per se, but they are useful for testing the faith and weeding out false Christians. And speaking of New York finally catching up to California and legalizing weed, speaking of weeds, he's always using the parable <laughs> of the sower for imaging the devil as casting tares among the good crop to cause chaos. What the hell is a tear anyway? I'm just going to resist a terrible pun right now. I guess I got, I didn't resist it. Um, So good. So good. (laughs) uh, It's, but yeah, it's back to the aping God motif, uh, sort of similar to Yaldabaoth. Um, The the tear sort of looks like when it's young, looks like wheat when it's young. So it's like creating this stupid, useless parody of religion. Um, And heresies are like the fake weed. I mean, wheat. (laughs) Shit. <laughs> uh, this sounds a lot like Justin Martyr, or as we like to call him here on the pod, J Mart, who saw the demons <laughs> inventing idolatry to mock the sacraments, you know, before they were even invented. Those cunning bastards. But yes, uh, speaking of rituals and devotions and all that, Tertullian has a lot to say about the devil when he's discussing sacraments in prayer. Um, and one of the places I saw this was in baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say, I mean, like we, we do, we are kind of roasting Tertullian, but, 
and some of these English translations are a little bit overwrought, but um, he does write very well. Uh, and so like in, in the treatise on baptism, he makes compare, he sort of takes it back to um, Genesis and the creation and the sort of divine simplicity of water uh, and this idea of, the, of God's spirit, like hovering above the water. Um, and it's sort of like this primal site of life and this primal site of division um, and unlike what we talked about in some of our legendary first episodes, there isn't quite the same association between chaos and evil and dragons with water in what Tertullian's right. doing here. It's about like this, this purity, this simplicity, this sort of primordial element. Um, it does get a bit violent though, because one of the things that, uh, patristic theologians love to do is to take the Hebrew Bible and use it as sort of types that anticipate and symbolize uh, later developments in Christian uh, theology and practice, like a little bit arbitrarily. But, um, you know, if, uh, you know, the, the sort of appeal to Genesis sort of makes sense because Genesis has this kind of like priestly, you know, uh, procedure to the way everything's created. Um, but yeah, I said it gets a bit violent because then the other thing that he wants to say is uh, going into the book of Exodus where um, when Moses and the children of Israel flee and escape uh, by way of the Sea of Reeds and God holds, you know, or also known as the Red Sea and, you know, the, the Jewish publication society's version of Sea of Reeds uh, and God holds the, the, the waters back. And then when Pharaoh's troops come rushing after them, God, you know, lets the waters fall down and drown them. And for, for Tertullian, yeah, good, yeah, yeah good for the sound effects in there, um, mm. sound effect budget going up. Um, but for, yeah, for probably predictably, but for Tertullian, the Pharaoh's troops who get drowned in the Red Sea, Sea of Reeds, represent the devil and his angels. And they're being drowned in baptism. They're being, they're being swept away. Um, and, uh, there's like this real, uh, faith and, um, reliance on the sacraments for combating the devil. Um, but to sort of stick with the, the Exodus example, of course, after the children of Israel escape out of Egypt, they're, they're kind of wandering around for a while. Uh, they're sort of stuck in the desert. They're grumbling. They're being tempted. Some of them are being like sort of consumed by the earth um, for, for, <laughs> for messing up. Um, and for Tertullian, this is, yeah, man, the sound effect budget, it just, it's, it's paying dividends. Um, but for Tertullian, this is <laughs> emblematic of how even after you're baptized as a Christian, and he seems always to be imagining um, in adult baptisms or at least, you know, people who are, who are not infants um, being baptized, uh, you know, you're sort of going through this process of maturation and this process of being tested in your faith. Um, and with the case of the Israelites being sort of stuck in limbo, you know, for 40 years, that is this sort of idea that like people are going to mess up. They're going to be chastised. They're going to go through uh, these sorts of tests, whether from, you know, idolatrous Roman society or paganism or uh, heresies or whatever the devil wants to throw at you, like God forbid makeup, all these tests are going to be there, uh, to, to sort of, um, test your, uh, conversion and your purification through baptism. Um, but the other way it kind of connects to sacraments is that, uh, Tertullian uses images from the Eucharist to sort of describe how baptism is also a preparation for what these Christian thinkers euphemistically refer to as the second baptism or sometimes the third baptism, which is the baptism of being, you know, having your yes. blood spill out yes. as a martyr. Speaking um, of perpetual and infelicity, so, where that image actually yeah, appears. Yeah, exactly, 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 exactly. Um, but yeah, like Tertullian's like, uh, um, you 
are baptized because you believe that this water is cleansing you because of the blood that Jesus spilled. And then later you're being prepared to drink that blood and spill that blood for yourselves. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of ways in which the devil isn't just this mythological um, black hat wearing villain, but also sort of central to um, the kind of more everyday aspects of the way Christians were being formed as subjects through ritual. Yeah. Practice. And speaking of those kinds of everyday ritual practices that Christians are engaging in, one of them is prayer. And he has this treatise on prayer where he does an explication of the Lord's prayer. And I just really dug this part. So um, there's this line, deliver us from evil that occurs in this famous prayer taken from the gospels that is a model for all Christian prayer. And instead of talking about evil as this disembodied force that Christians need to grapple with, you may have already guessed that he takes it to the devil. So instead of deliver us from, he, he does this reading of the Latin translation of this line, deliver us from evil, which in the Greek is, could more explicitly refers to a disembodied force, but in Latin could be interpreted as deliver us from the evil one. Right. And he runs with that, of course. So (laughs) because he's like, this is all about temptation. This part of the Lord's prayer is all about temptation. And so you see that here, deliver us from the evil one is something that we ask for God to do that. That's sort of, as you think about the use of the Lord's prayer in Christian ritual life, it's also one of the, from the earliest centuries of Christianity, it's been one also encouraged to be said in private devotion and often and memorized, especially because, you know, lots of people are not able to read. So this is so central to what Christianity is. And he takes what is ambiguous or more likely not about the devil and turns it into that such that the devil becomes part of everyday Christian prayer practice the way that he wants us to imagine the prayer and that seems super important because you've got temptation this force from the evil one that needs to be contended with yeah no and i I think the way he this kind of can help us segue i think into so just like some some final thoughts about our experiences with tertullian and how we see him relating to the podcast themes um but uh, this sort of tends, this sort of tendency to um, connect the devil both to ritual in the everyday and also to mm-hmm. morality seems like a really, it's, you know, you can see traces of it in other things we've looked at, but like he was really emphasizing that and, and sort of leaning into that. Uh, so that seemed important yeah, to me. Yeah, for sure. My experience of reading Tertullian, I, I've said it before, I do think uh, he can be like, a really gifted writer. Uh, he had really, you know, uh, sophisticated and advanced rhetorical training. Um, and that shows a lot of times. Um, I didn't like dig into a lot of the Latin, but like, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite the the Latinist uh, that you are Travis, but, um, but I I think it would be worth it. I mean, like, you know, um, even with any ability, I think he, he's like, he he really can, can write a sentence. Um, and it, it even comes across in, in English translations. Um, but, so it seems like this really great talent, uh, but he's also like, he's keyed up, he, you know, 
he's not psychotic, but he's paranoid. Like he's paranoid. Uh, he's deeply suspicious. And it reminded me, and this is a little anachronistic and it's probably cause I'm listening to that other podcast, uh, know your enemy about, uh, American conservatism, but like this sort of like, uh, paranoia and sense of embattlement. It really, to me, like I see connections between, um, different moments in Christian history and the ways in which, uh, conservative moment movements like sort of style themselves as these sort of embattled minorities of like the of like the true and the good americans like the sense like oh like like we need to keep the true pure faith of who we really are but like the world is corrupted and like we're just like it's it's a battle and like we're we're fighting you know i don't know that to me like i i see that and it's it is it is like a little bit ahistorical and anachronistic but like it's it's no coincidence that a lot of these really conservative movements are are sort of tapping into different kinds of Christianity, whether uh, evangelical or conservative Catholic or everything in between. Um, And related to that, one of my takeaways from this engagement with Tertullian is the way he dances around engagement with Greek philosophy, I think is probably quite important. That he both wants to claim and make use of some of this rhetoric while in the same breath disavowing um, its its relation to, you know, it's and then severing any relation that people might want to construct between Greek thought and Christian theology. That seems important in how the devil gets worked out in theological systems that are to come. What, how can you, how do you construct a system that maybe has roots outside of, you know, the, um, the Greek Christian scriptures and the Hebrew um, Israelite and Jewish scriptures, what resources are okay, and how does that affect how you imagine the devil to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to me that he wants to he takes the rhetoric and wants to leave the philosophy, uh, because of course in Plato, um, it's the the dialecticians against the sophists and the rhetors, right? Yeah. You know, so it's like Tartullian siding with uh, the, the 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 enemies in, Soc- in in the Socratic dialogues and in Plato's. You know, it's sort of an interesting twist. Um, so he's he sort of does bring Athens to Jerusalem by uh, by sort of taking the other side, yeah, um, which I think is, is interesting. But I hear what you're saying, like right, like there's like he's like trying even you know try as he may. I mean, he's a he's a you know part of the Roman. He's a citizen of the Roman Empire. I believe he's a citizen. Uh, he's 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 a, a resident. He's he's you know he's part of that culture, um, and so he has to deal with this entire inheritance in one way or the other. And so yeah, it's like. Um, you know, sometimes I was, I was seeing in my reading that he is linked to certain um, Stoic ideas yes, in philosophy. Like his mm-hmm. like his own idea of spirituality or sp- what a spirit is is a kind of material. It's almost like materialistic. It's like a it's like a very fine kind of material. Um, so there are ways in which he clearly is indebted to um, the sort of great. Uh, Greco-Roman Mediterranean philosophical Yeah, and I think we'll get Um, to explore that in greater depth, as you've already hinted, Klaus, when we talk about Augustine. Uh, And we'll see, in a slightly different context, how Augustine navigates, and of course we've already talked about Augustine to a certain extent, but how Augustine navigates the use of these intellectual resources, bringing philosophy and theology together, and how that uh, affects his view of who the opponent is and how you battle the opponent and the opponent as a rhetorical opponent, et cetera, this idea of temptation. And we're, and this sort of takes us into a, a quick preview of next episode too, because we will be staying in North Africa and Egypt as we look at Alexandrian theologians like Origen, where the idea of maybe the devil isn't just the enemy forever. 
comes up and the idea yeah. of is it possible for God to forgive and, and re, you know, sort of rehabilitate the devil is like a live question uh, and one that would be very vexing for the tradition. So that's what we have uh, on deck next. But yeah. Oh, I'm so looking forward to that. Multiple worlds, multiple Christs. Origin is just so good. Um, so anyway, stay tuned. Uh, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you.